right, so today, 10-year anniversary, we're going to be celebrating all month. <laughs> so, uh, in fact, uh, what's, what's cool is that I'm preaching out of John 4 today, and uh, uh, this will be the 10th year in a row I've preached out of the same chapter. Every single year, the first week of July, I preach to remind us of who Jesus is, what He's doing, and, and also what kind of people we are to be. So uh, a little bit of, um, a, 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 a back story here, since you might be new to the church uh, and maybe haven't been here that long, but uh, my wife and I, um, for four years prior to Living Water, we were at a church that was very difficult to pastor. Um, in fact, we, I really had serious doubts of whether I could be a pastor. And that church uh, was very difficult for me. I didn't feel loved, uh, wanted, um, did not really feel like I was the pastor. I felt like really what they wanted was somebody to preach on a Sunday and then to leave them alone the rest of the time. And that's just not how God wired me. And so uh, I just felt, I felt like I didn't fit in. And I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to. I'm like, if there was one person who's supposed to fit in, it's supposed to be the pastor. And so... Um, I just said, Lord, if this is what church is supposed to be, I don't know that I want to be a part of it. Has any of everybody, anybody been like, if this is what it is, I don't want it, right? And so I remember that, God, if this is what church is supposed to be, I don't know that I'm buying in. And so God began to lay on my heart this, this vision, this picture of, of a church that didn't even exist yet. Not saying that other people don't have that same vision as, as a church planter, but um, I remember walking in after a, after a business meeting, and I came in, and my wife, usually I'm mad, and I'm like, I'm resigning, I'm done with this, this is stupid, I'm out, you know, but I walked in very calm, and Barbara's like, didn't you just have a business meeting? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. She's like, why aren't you mad? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't even know, it was the worst one that I've ever been in, and uh, so unbiblical, and anyways, to make a long story short, um, God had released me finally after four years. I've been begging him for four years. Please, God, let me pastor anywhere else. But, you know, here's what God taught me. I wasn't ready for living water at that point in my life. At that point in my life, I still thought I had something to offer. At that point in my life, I thought I was a good leader. At that point in my life, I thought I was pretty good at, at doing the church stuff. And, it, and, and I thought I was ready for that next place. And, and God says, you know, you, you, it's not about you. Um, I'm the one that you're bringing to the table. And you're not, you're not the leader here. I am. This is not going to be your church. It's going to be mine. And if we're not going, if it's not going to be mine, it's not, we're not going to do this. And so I had a lot to learn. And so through that four years, it was actually God putting me in a very tough situation in life to actually break me down to build me back up into the kind of man he wanted me to be. So a lot of times we kick and scream when our life gets tough, not realizing that God is taking us through that desert to build our faith so that we're ready for the promised land. So when you're going through a desert in your life and you feel a drought coming on, embrace it as my good friend Zeb over here says, embrace the suck. Uh, he used to say that all the time. Took me up on a mountain, 17 days, you know, and like, I'm like, this is terrible. It's hot 
and then it's snowing, and then it's raining. This is terrible. And he goes, you got to embrace it. Embrace what? Embrace the suck. And I'm like, okay, all right. So anyways, so, so God opened that door, and he started beginning to build. And I remember <laughs> sitting down with my little kids on the couch and, at a Christmas time, and they were watching Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the old one, right? <laughs> the old one, right? And I remember sitting down, and, and I don't know, Chloe, I don't know if she was born yet. No, she wouldn't have been, yeah, maybe, right around, maybe, maybe she was in a tummy at that point. I don't remember, but I, I do remember that I'm sitting down with the kids. Barbara's probably cooking in the, the kitchen that's so wonderful. And, um, and I remember sitting there, and I'm watching, and all of a sudden, you know, you never know when God's going to give you this amazing inspiration, right? Out of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, the inspiration for this church came. I'm not kidding you. You're like, you're like, you know, it's like, why wasn't I at a revival or something, you know? Why, why wasn't it after like 48 hours of solid, nothing but prayer time, you know, fasting? No, it was with my kids watching the, 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 the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and they travel over to the island of misfit toys. And I'm like, man, there should be a church for misfits. If you don't fit in anywhere else, come on over, you know, that's, and then all of a sudden, I'm like, yes, that's what living water needs to be about, but we didn't even have a name at that point, it was just, it was just like, God, we don't want to do it like that, that's the one thing I knew, I knew, like, okay, and there's not, and I'm not telling you that the traditional church is great if you're traditional, it really is, and so I have nothing against the traditional setting of a church, if you're traditional. But guess what? I, I was like the class clown of, of my class. In fact, that's in the yearbook, I was voted class clown. I'm like, class clowns, I don't know if you know this or not, they don't fit in to traditional church. I remember a guy says, the pulpit's no place for jokes. I'm like, man, I don't want to go to your house. Please don't invite me over for lunch. Because then I'll be like, this is so awkward. We don't smile. We don't laugh. And I mean, but that's how God wired me. So I'm like, man, I, if I don't fit into normal church, then there's got to be some unnormal, you know, like puts the fun in dysfunctional. You know, I mean, we need a church that puts some fun into dysfunctional, right? Is that over the line, Barbara? Okay, we're just going to. So anyways, all the dumb sayings I've ever said in a sermon, she writes in the backs of her Bible and then reminds me of how dumb that I can be up here, you know, so <laughs> she's like, remember that time that you, oh, but please don't say that, so um, you, so anyways, um, so, so this, 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 this idea came that we wanted to be a church where anyone could come, it doesn't matter, and here's one of our hearts, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter where you've been, and it doesn't matter what you've done, there's got to be a place where anyone and everyone is welcome, right? Everyone. So that's where the living water heart came from. Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer, we got to have an island of misfit toys. And so then all of a sudden I said, Barbara, but, but I can't call this, you know, uh, you know, I was like, I, we almost, we did consider it misfit church, but um, I thought, you know, it probably would get a lot of flack for that. So we still call it that, you know, under the radar, but we do have a name, Living Water. And my wife was the one um, that actually found that. I was like, man, we got to find something that connects us to our community. It's not just a cool name, but it needs to be a cool name. And I said, I don't want to put denominations in the name because I don't want to scare anybody else. I want everyone. I want there to be Pentecostals and Mennonites, you know, Yoder. You know, a lot of people drove by and they're like, you're a Yoder. Is this a Mennonite church? I was like, no, this is a Heinz 57. Everything mixed together into one pot. <laughs> so, 
So people ask me all the time, what denomination are you? Well, I, what denomination are you? And they're like, Pentecostal. Well, sure, come on. They're like, oh, I'm, I'm Methodist. Well, come on. I'm Catholic. Well, we got a place for you. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All right. So, so, so anyway, so then, so, so as this was happening, right? So, so I'm, Barbara came up and she goes, oh, mate, Daniel, you've got to read John 4. And I'm like, and so my mind goes right, goes right to there. I'm like, oh, yeah, the woman at the well. And, and, and then she, Barbara says, we're in a fishing town. We're on the lake, living water. And I'm like, done. But see, even though I loved the name right the moment it came out of my wife, I mean, anything that she says is great. So, you know, like, like uh-huh, uh-huh. So, so anyway, so it was great. But then all of a sudden I started reading the story and I'm like, this is exactly what I want. The heart of every member. If you are a member of the Church of Living Water or you consider this your church, whether you've been here one week or three weeks or 10 years, this is our heart. We want to be a church who offers everyone living water. Right? That's, I mean, that's, when I start thinking about it, that's what I want us to be. It doesn't matter who you are. I want to offer it. And so that's what we're going to see in today. So today, um, the sermon title, I love it, From Misfit to Missionary in One Moment. Isn't that cool? So I was like, Lord, we've been doing this for 10 years. Is there something fresh and new and exciting? And so all of a sudden, I started thinking about how we're the church of misfits. And if there was anybody in the Bible that is a misfit, it's this woman in this, in this testimony or in this, in this thing. So... John 4. So, guys, what we're going to start off by doing is setting the stage. So, in the first eight verses, it says this. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was going and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So, he left Judea, and he went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. I want you to, interest, I want you to kind of take mental note there. He had to go through there. No, he didn't. There's three routes. I'm going to show you about that in a little bit. There's three routes. He didn't have to, but he did. He had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of Jacob, had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Always interesting how there's little details peppered throughout every story. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So what we're going to do is one of the things that I always say is, is we got to set the stage. Okay, we've got to set the stage. And so setting a stage is after you read a passage, one of the things that, that I like to do is um, kind of if I was a director of a play and this was the stage, I would want to start decorating and setting the stage of what this would look like. What does a first century well, what was it like? Well, one, you had to bring your own bucket, maybe something you didn't know. They didn't all just come standard with a bucket. You brought you, you could bring your own bucket, right? <laughs> if you want the water, you get your own bucket. And so, um, and also, um, you know, people did not draw water in the middle of the day. It's hot. You're in the Middle East. You've got to remember, it's hot. So if I was setting this stage, I would be picturing hot, sun blazing, tired from walking. Jesus has been walking and traveling all day. He's tired. He sits down. The disciples say, you know what? We're, we're hungry. We're going to go to a restaurant. We'll bring you some food back. I mean, this is the setting. This is all taking place. Now, a couple of things that I want to make sure that you understand. They left, um, they left Judea to go to Galilee. This is a three-day journey. It's not like they can just get in a car and drive. They're walking, okay? And they didn't have a lot of money. They, were, they, 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 they didn't have camels. They didn't have donkeys. So they're walking from one area that takes them three days. There are three different 
paths. Two do not include Samaria. And I'm going to show you why the, the, the Jews did not like the Samaritans, but two of the three travel routes, you know, Google search and Google, Google maps, would take them around Samaria. It adds an extra 11 miles, which would mean that's an extra days of travel. But you know what? Most Jews walked an extra day just to go around Samaria. That's how much they hated it. Have you ever thought about how somebody can hate somebody so much that they would go a day out of their way walking? This isn't like just an extra hour driving. This is an extra day walking in the sun just to go around a city they didn't like because the people there they didn't like. Kind of sounds like people today, though, doesn't it? I mean, really, when you start looking at these stories, maybe it happened 2,000 years ago, but guess what? It's super relevant to our lives today. People still do this. People will go out of their way just not to be around. But the third, the third route went right through Samaria. So the Jews didn't like the Samaritans. One of the things that I find is that this dislike that the Jews had for the Samaritans went back thousands of years, not just hundreds, thousands of years. You know, I started thinking about, man, how much these Jews hated them. Really reminded me of racism. The Jews didn't even know the current Samaritans at all. They just knew what their parents had said, that their parents had said, that their parents had said, that their parents had said, and all of a sudden, well, because my parents don't like somebody, I don't either. Like, my kids are not fans of Biden, and they don't even know why, just because they've heard it come out of my mouth. And if, you're, if you like Biden, we're still friends, okay? We can still be friends, all right? But, um, but the thing is, is, so many times our kids like or dislike what we like, and they don't even know why, because they just do it because their parents are doing it. And that's racism. So much of racism is just, I don't like you. I don't know you. How do you not like somebody? How do you know if you like them or dislike them if you don't even know them? There's no place in God's kingdom for racism. I love is that God doesn't care what your color is. He created all colors. Huh? He doesn't care how much money you have. He has it all. Right? So if you have a lot of money, that doesn't impress God. I mean, still tithe, please. I mean, you know, I'm just saying. You know, we like your money. I'm just kidding. So um, status, positions, titles, popularity, none of that. I had a church member a long time ago had a picture of Jesus in their house and he had blonde hair and blue eyes. She's, she said to me, she says, see, Jesus is white. That's proof that, that the white color is the true color of God's people. She was very racist. And I'm like, in my mind, <laughs> just in my mind, I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. I mean, little kids have nothing on this lady right now. A grown adult. He was a Jew. He was brown. Had brown hair and brown eyes. Come on, lady. But her racism was so strong. I'm like, listen, they did this. That's a picture of Jesus. They didn't have cameras back then. Hello. But see, 
Don't we get caught up into those preconceived ideas? We don't like somebody because somebody else doesn't like them. How many times do we not like someone else because one of our friends don't like them and we don't even know it? It's a form of racism too, isn't it? See, history continues to repeat itself if we're not willing to learn from it. So I hope that we can learn something. See, the, the hatred from the Jews to the Samaritans go all the way back to the times of Moses. In Deuteronomy, Moses told the people, when God brings you into the land entering to possess and drives out before you all the nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Prezites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and whoever else, ites, right? I mean, there's a lot of ites going on. But when he drives them out, he says that you are not to intermarry with them. Don't give your sons to their daughters or your daughters to their sons because they will lead you astray. So what did God's people do? They gave their sons and daughters to other peoples that didn't share their same values, their different core values, their different um, beliefs, and all these things. And all of a sudden, just like God said in His Word, the people were led astray. In 2 Kings, it didn't get any better because in 2 Kings, in chapter 17, Assyria finally came in and they conquered Samaria, which was the capital city of Israel. And, and, they, and they took a bunch of the Israelites and scattered them away. And then they brought in a whole bunch of other, uh, the Babylonians at that point, but they brought in all the other conquered people and scattered them throughout Israel. And what the whole goal was is to make sure that they didn't leave enough Israelites to, to form a rebellion. So anytime a foreign nation back in the, in the early centuries on, they would conquer a city, they would take the people out and disperse them elsewhere and then bring other peoples in so that there's no way you could speak the same language and, and devise up a rebellion against them. And guess what? In Samaria, the capital city of Israel, became this hodgepodge of idol worship. And, the, and, and, and to the Jews of the south of Judea, of Jerusalem, the city of David, right? They saw Samaria as selling out. They saw them as a watered, they was watering down their race. So Jews hated anyone from Samaria even though that's blood. I just want you to understand, and a reason why I'm really laying this on thick here is because the Jews hated going through Samaria to get to anywhere. And Jesus went right to that city because He loved them. The person that you hate most in this world, God still loves more than anything and died on the cross for the person you like the least. So I want you to take just a moment and I want you to think in your mind the person that you can't stand, I don't want to say hate, can't stand the most. Just, just right now. Not your spouse! Stop it! I want you to think for a moment the person who's hurt you the most, the person who in your mind is the worst person that was ever born. Okay? And I want you to know that Jesus died for that person too. Does that not change it a little bit? Come on, does it change it a little bit? When you realize that God loves them too. When I realize that God loves the person that I can't stand, 
He loved them and died on the cross and he still wants them saved. And it, then it speaks to my heart and says, Daniel, is your heart in the right place? Is your heart the same heart as Jesus? Because if it is, you're going to have to get over some stuff. So, Jesus went to Samaria despite their failure-driven past. He doesn't care about their past. He cares about their future. Have you ever thought about that? The per- people that, that you really don't like, God's more concerned about their eternal future than their past sins, their past failures, their, even their present sins. This woman at the well is currently living in sin, and he still offers her living water. I think that's the most remarkable thing about the entire passage. Something that church people should pick up on. I want you to know that he doesn't care who you are, where you've been, or what you've done. He meets you right where you are. Jesus meets you right where you are. Sin and all. He meets you right where you are not where I want you to be. How many churches miss that? They look at somebody and they count them off because, well, that person, and they identify them by their sin, right? You know what I'm talking about. They identify the person by their sin. Well, that person is an alcoholic. That person is a homosexual. That person is a transgender. That person is angry. That person is unforgiven. That person is bitter. That person's mean. That per- and we, we identify and label and define people by what we see, not what God sees. He met her right where she was and still offered her living water. And he knew all the sin of her life already. And guess what? Jesus did the same for you. Didn't he? He did the same thing for you. So who are we to define people by their past mistakes or even their current sin? All right, so I want to talk about the appointment. I skipped a slide. There we go. So he begins to set this appointment up. He had to go. (laughs) He had to go through Samaria. That was a, a, a point that kind of stuck out to me is he had to go. He really didn't have to. He could go around. But that wasn't really Jesus. Jesus never went around. <laughs> he went straight through everything. I mean, it just that was who he was. He didn't beat around the bush. He spoke the truth. Jesus had to go this route because he had a divine appointment with a woman at a well. She just didn't know it yet. How many of you remember the appointment that God had with you? Anybody remember that point in your life where you knew that you were meeting him and he was meeting you and you're doing, you're, you're, we're getting something done here together? You know, one of the things that I always tell people is, is you know, it's, it, you know I, could, I could preach and teach all day long on the, on, on, on the Bible and, and, and why I believe that it's all true, but the reality is what God has done in me, there's no one on this green earth, and they could debunk the Bible a million times, and I'm like, I, I don't care what you, what, you, what you think that is different or this, because He's in here, and no one can tell me otherwise. 
I know who I was before Christ, and I know who I am now with Christ, and no one's changing my mind, right? So, so this woman didn't even know there was a divine appointment with the king of kings coming her way. This is what I find so amazing about God. So his timing is perfect. It's amazing. So his timing, God's timing, includes a time, noon, right? No one else goes to draw water. So this is a very uh, weird time. A location, it's Jacob's well. The setting, he needed to remove all the distractions because if the disciples were hovering around, this woman is probably not going to talk. So he sends the people in to go get the food, and now it's just Jesus. Now I want you to think about this. Jesus is one of the most important figures of the, at this time. The disciples, there's nobody more important than Jesus. Why would you leave him alone in a hostile place? But that's what needed to happen. So whether Jesus convinced them or the disciples were not uh, thinking about that they probably should leave some, some kind of security. Maybe the Judas the Zealot, who is probably trained in battle, probably leave him. Nope. He's all by himself there. See, for a divine appointment, you have to be at the right place at the right time with the right person. All the details matter to God. I don't know them. Disciples didn't know them. The woman didn't know them. How many times has God arranged this perfect meeting for you to bump into somebody at the right place at the right time with the right person and we missed it? Because we were so focused on our own plans. We plan so much, don't we? Have you ever thought about how often we plan? I, I mean, you get up and you plan your day. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. Have we ever stopped and said, God, this is what I think I need to do today, but is there anything that you want me to know about? Is there, would, you, would you keep my heart tender in case there's somebody coming along? My, what if you're going to the store and you have all this list of groceries that you need to get, but God actually has you going to the store because he needs you to bump into the right person at the right time, the right place? Right? But how many times are we not even in tune with God at any moment of that time to even see if God has something set up for us. We miss so many times, we miss so many appointments because we're so focused on our own. You see, the Bible says here, Jeremiah 29, 11, you guys know this, for I know the plans. Who knows the plans? God knows the plans. He has a plan, not just for Israel as a nation, He has a plan for your life. He has a plan for your children. God has the plan. I like Isaiah 55, 9, and it says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth. How, how, how much higher is heaven than the earth? I mean, could you even measure? Could anybody think that they could measure that? Right? So he's saying, as in the same way as the distance between heaven and earth is how much smarter than I am than you. I mean, that's what God's saying is my thoughts are that much higher than your thoughts. I'm thinking, so God doesn't, he doesn't just look at my moment. He looks at the whole picture and he sees where somebody else is coming and he, and he, and he sees the whole thing. Man, I'm gonna have this person and this person be able to bump into a, and right in the aisle at Walmart at this moment. Please pay attention, please pay attention. Oh, she missed it. Oh, I can't believe he wasn't paying attention. I was like this. What? Where is where is this? You know, like, anytime I get a list, so I'm like, I, I, yeah. So anyways, so 
So then I'm wanting you to know that this divine appointment has to happen. That's the whole point of going here. The whole point of going through, because God has a bigger plan than just the woman, but it takes this woman. Misfit to missionary. I want you to, I want you to memorize that. Misfit to missionary in a moment. This woman is going to completely turn a community upside down at the end of the story. Now, you're going to have to come next week and the next week to get the whole story, because I'm only doing part of the story today. I'm leaving you hanging. It's like a cliffhanger. We're going to be hanging for a week. All right, so... I want to show you this next part of the passage, though. Okay, so, and it might be small, but we're in John chapter 4. I'm going to read 20, uh, 7, 26. We're not going over all of them, but I want you to hear the conversation. I want this encounter, this divine appointment. Jesus starts the divine appointment. Will, will you give me a drink? That's all. Will you give me a drink? The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. So not only am I a Samaritan, but I'm a Samaritan and I am a woman how can you ask me for a drink? She's not concerned that there's a man thirsty. She's more, con- you see what I'm saying? She's not concerned about that. She's like, how can you ask me? Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift, the word gift is grace. If you knew the grace of God, the patience that Jesus has with us, right? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you, he knows that she doesn't know, but if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Isn't that crazy? Sir, (laughs) the woman said, you have nothing to draw. You don't have a bucket. (laughs) You're telling me, you asked me for a drink. Now you're telling me if I would have asked you, you would have given, you don't even have a bucket, sir. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well, drank from it and as well as his sons and the livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Now he started off the conversation with being thirsty. Would you give me a drink? Indeed, the water I give them will become in them. And I want you to see that in them. You see, this is what Christ does in our lives, what he does in us. Physically, I get thirsty, but he's doing something spiritually inside that I can't often even put words to. Become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep drawing water here. He says, go get your husband and come back. I have no husband, she says. And he says, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you are with now is not your husband. What you said is quite true. That's pretty direct. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Let's deflect, right? Let's not talk about my sins and my mistakes. You're a prophet. I can see that. I got a big question for you. You're a pastor. Let me give you a Bible question, right? So, you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews compl- uh, claim that uh, place where we must worship in Jerusalem. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For that is, they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is 
spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah. I'm confused. <laughs> this is, I'm confused. The woman says, um, I know a Messiah is coming, and he will explain everything. Jesus declared, I, the one, speaking to you, I am he. Whew, right? Pretty cool. I mean, when you start looking at the whole story, here's a very confused woman who's deflecting everything. She misses everything that he says. Did you guys catch that? Everything he says, she's not thinking of it in the way that he's putting it. So what I want us to do is take a moment and see what we can learn about this woman. The woman, she's drawing water at noon, right? It's the heat of the day. No one else is around. Why would you do that? Well, because she's avoiding people. She is living in a life of sin. It was not accepted by her community. She's an outcast. She's skeptical of people. She deflected everything that Jesus said, deflected it to something else. She is defined by her failures, her past failures. Five failed marriages, living with a man that's not hers to live with. Whew. Right? She's an outcast of her community. If she wasn't, she would be drawing water with him. Who in the world would want to draw water at the hottest part of the day just to avoid people? I want you to hear me. Often people can only see the exterior sinful life. See, the people in the community often only can see the exterior sinful life that they're living not the broken heart within. This woman was hurting just like anybody else. Every one of you has hurt at a deep level before. Every one of you. But a lot of people could only see how you were coping with your pain. Maybe it was alcohol. Maybe it was drugs. Maybe it was in broken relationships. I don't know. But I'm telling you that every one of us has, has, has had a broken heart and many of us coped with it a different way that was not right. Am I, am I the only one that's ever coped wrong? Okay, so there's only, some of you are coping with lying right now. That's okay. We'll, we'll deal with lying on another week. <clears throat> Unfortunately, people couldn't see her heart because all they could see was her sin. Unfortunately, a lot of churches reject people because that's all they see. If you're going to be a real church of Jesus Christ, you're going to become a hospital not a country club. Hospitals are filled with sickness. Hospitals are filled with disease, right? But it's the place that we start to get better. She was identified by her mistakes, not by what God would have her being defined by. The second thing that she is, she's held captive by her shame. I want you to hear me and hear me well that shame is not from God. Shame is from the devil. From the very beginning when God created Adam and Eve, they were both naked. They were a part of the first nudist colony. Okay, Back then, when they were first created, it was okay to run around in the nude. Not anymore. Do not do that now. You will be arrested. But in that time, it said that they were both naked and they felt no shame. Okay? But then they sinned, they messed up in the garden, they, they were deceived, they ate from the tree they weren't supposed to, and all of a sudden they realized, you're naked, well so are you, 
Oh man, then they got some, some leaves and they began to cover their nakedness and they hid from God. This is what the devil does. When you mess up, and every one of us messes up, when you mess up, he wants you to feel shame. Because what shame does is it causes you to, to recluse from everyone else. It causes you to hide. It causes you to run. And what ends up happening is that you don't want to confront it and so you avoid everyone. You build up walls. You avoid people who would help you. Shame causes us to hate ourselves. Everything that's self... Uh, let's see, I wrote down a couple of things here, um, but I'm not even on the right page anymore. Well, I was. I just skipped over it. Self-deprivation, self-condemnation, self-hatred. And a complete withdrawal from God. You see, the difference is, is that shame... Shame is what the devil would want you to feel. Sorrow is what God wants you to feel. There's a difference between shame and sorrow. You see, sorrow, in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 11, it says this, Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that sorrow led to repentance. Sorrow leads us to repentance, and repentance leads us to salvation. You see what I'm saying? Sorrow leads me to God. Shame makes me hide from God. Have you ever felt shame where you wanted to hide from everybody? You were so, you hated yourself for what you did so much that you wanted to hide from everybody, right? That's shame. Sorrow says, God, I want to make it right. There's a big difference. Sorrow says, man, I messed up. I want to make it right. What's it going to take for me and you to be right? When you mess up in your marriage, sorrow leads you to make it right. Shame leads you to hide. Big difference. She was held captive by her shame. Lastly, she has no hope of a future. Life of insanity. Have you ever lived a life of insanity? Are you doing the same thing over and over and over, expecting different results, but nothing's changing? She had five failed marriages. She kept trying the same thing over and over and over. She couldn't find her joy and happiness and peace in marriage. She was missing the one major ingredient, the most important ingredient, that's God. If I was looking for happiness in my wife, I would not have found it. But when I found happiness in God, my marriage became great. Changes a lot. When I find the creator who created me, it opens the door for all my other relationships to be more successful. Living, you can't start living until change takes place. See, without hope, we become skeptical. She was skeptical of what Jesus was bringing. So, in the conversation, all these things of who she was began to really weigh in on how she reacted. So, because of her being defined maybe by her community or maybe she defined herself by her past sins, and, and maybe because um, she was um, you know, held captive by her shame that she was carrying around. She avoided everybody, having no hope. Every time Jesus was trying to offer hope and to something that would change her life, she, was, she wasn't thinking in the same way. When Jesus said, if you knew who it was and who was asking, you would have asked and you would have given living water, she was more concerned 
about who she thought he was than what he asked for. He says, can I have a drink of water? Who are you? You're a Jew. She's not thinking about the water. She's not thinking about, hey, here's a thirsty guy. I mean, here's the deal, is a lot of times we are so skeptical of people and we've shut ourselves off from people so much that just somebody that wants something from us or needs something, we automatically begin to try to see who they are rather than just giving them a cup of water. How hard it would have been just like, yes, sir, yeah, you're thirsty, here you go. She was more concerned on who she thought it was. You're a Jew, I don't want to help you. Don't we do the same thing, though? Don't we sometimes get caught up in judging people? See, this sermon is not just for if you're lost. If you're lost, it's a great sermon for you. Also, if you're a Christian of 50 years, it's great for you. Because sometimes we lose sight of what Jesus did and what he offered. And we also miss sight of that how we can be so cynical and we can become skeptical just like this woman. More concerned about who she thinks he is. Have you ever got caught up in how you think you, what you think somebody is? Like you heard something about somebody and now automatically you think that about them. You don't know the truth though. You didn't see it with your own eyes, hear it with your own ears, but you automatically now made the same assumption that someone else did. Well, then he says, uh, he, he began to, to talk about this living water and she said, well, you don't even... You don't have a, a bucket to draw from. She was more concerned about what he didn't have than what he did. Do we ever approach God like that? Or do approach other people more concerned about what we don't think they have than what they actually have to offer? What I'm wanting you to see is that everything in this woman, the way that she was wired, the way that life had dealt with her, how she responded to everything was not, she missed the point. Every single turn, she missed the point. Lastly, she was more concerned about what she can get now than what he was really offering later. Would you give me that water so that I don't have to keep coming here? I want to avoid people forever. If you can give me that living water, then I can just sit at my house and avoid people forever and never have to even get out of my house. You see, she was missing everything. Regardless of how she reacted I still find it amazing that he kept offering. I mean, I think probably right after she called me a Jew, and how can I, how, like basically how dare you ask me, I would have been like, forget it. I had something really cool to offer you, but done, I don't want to now. Right? Come on, you're laughing because some of you have done that. You're like, somebody really made you mad in a conversation, like I want to offer you living water, but I'll pour it on the ground instead. I mean, we kind of have, Christians can be some of the meanest people ever, and we're supposed to be the lovingest. Like, what's wrong with the church today? Man, we don't get it at all. He kept offering it. He kept offering it regardless of how she reacted, regardless of her insults, regardless of her deflection, regardless that she didn't want to talk about her sin when he did. He still offered her living water. Regardless of where you are in life, what you've done. I mean, a lot of people get to that point of where they's like, I don't believe that I can be saved. I don't believe I can be forgiven. I'm too bad. I can't tell you how many times. If I had a dollar for every time I heard something, I'm not good enough. God can never forgive me. I'm like, what did you do that God couldn't forgive you? I mean, you must be like a notorious sinner, right? Notorious. I mean, 
The moment we start thinking that God can't forgive us of our sin is when we think that His power is not very much. When Jesus died on the cross, He paid for all sin. Whether you wanted it paid for or not, it's already paid for. You just have to accept it or not. It's kind of like this, I paid for your ticket. No, I'm paying my ticket. Ain't going to be going to work. I love how he talked about how the living water that he was offering her, how it was going to, to become a well inside of her, right? It's going to be a spring constantly giving new life. What's interesting about the word living, that he, when he describes it, it's used multiple times in the New Testament to describe God. Nothing else. There's a whole bunch of different words in Greek for for um, live, living or life, this is the one used to describe God. It would have thrown her off a little bit because it wouldn't have been the normal word that you would use in this situation. But God uses it to describe something alive inside of you, the Spirit. So a little bit of symbolism. At this one point, she was trying to figure out if he was more powerful than Jacob. Are you greater than Jacob who gave us this well are you greater than that guy <laughs> if she only knew right I can promise you this Jesus is more Jesus is more than what you even think of him whatever you think you know about Jesus he's more than that there is no way any one human being on this earth can ever figure out all that Jesus is You'll never know that. You'll never have all of that. And so what I find so amazing is this. Uh, Francis Chan um, wrote a book called Crazy Love. And, and, and in the beginning of this book, he described it, if the love of God was the ocean, right? If, it's more than the ocean, but let's just put it in something that we can maybe fathom with our small minds. So if, the, if God's love was equivalent of an entire ocean, my understanding of his love is like a 12-ounce can. That's what I understand about God's love. But his love is so much more than what I can ever understand about it. His depth and his width, I remember Paul saying, man, I pray that you'll understand the height, the width, the depth of his love. If you could just understand how wide his love is, it'll change your life. But we're still in the 12-ounce can. She's trying to figure out, is, is, are you more, are you greater than what I, you know, greatness to them was Jacob. Man, he gave us this source of water. And Jesus is saying, now listen, the water that I'm giving you is greater than Jacob's water that he offered. In fact, if you want to look at some symbolism, Jacob handed down this well to his son Joseph and to their sons and all the way down until it became a well to the Samaritans. But the Father God of all handed down his one and only son that Jesus would be the living well with living water. And this new well, the only bucket you need is faith. Isn't that awesome? I don't know where you are today in your walk. You may be skeptical like this woman at the well is. Maybe you're skeptical of God. Maybe something happened a long time ago where you came to a point where you hate God. I don't know where each and every one of you are, but you're all at different places. 
But there's a message in this for each and every one of us. I can promise you that God can do exceedingly more than what you can ever think or ask. I can let you know that He's greater than what you think of Him. I can promise you that He'll meet you where you are. And when you offer Jesus to anyone else, you remember that same thing. If I'm going to catch a fish, I have to catch it before I clean it. So often Christians try to make people be who they want them to be before they ever even offer the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we forget that when we accepted Christ, we weren't so perfect either. Sometimes we forget that everybody's got messes and everybody's mess looks different. Don't judge somebody else's mess because it's different than yours.